As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Leung, an emeritus professor currently in the College of Health and Public Service at UNT, formerly a professor in the Department of Rehabilitation, Social Work and Addictions, and a disability and addictions rehabilitation psychologist. He has held academic and administrative appointments at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the University of Arizona. His interests include disability and rehabilitation from a multicultural perspective and is past president of the National Association of the Multicultural Rehabilitation Concerns. Dr. Leung is also a second and a half generation American of Chinese descent who graced Ollie by teaching a wonderful course titled Chinese Food in America, a food family memoir a tribute to my father. Earlier, he taught a very interesting class on Asians in America. Welcome, Dr. Leung. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I can't say what fascinates me more, your interest in disability and rehabilitation from a multicultural perspective, or your knowledge of Chinese food in America. Before we move on to the tasty topic of Chinese food in America, let's talk a bit about your background. As a rehabilitation and disability psychologist, in what ways do you find multicultural concerns having an effect on the populations that you worked with? Well, I think that this is an area that probably has more significance and importance in the whole what we call the rehabilitation process, regardless of what disability or what particular disease or what particular aspect of life that you're trying to cope with. The reason why I came across this was a number of years ago in working with the United States Department of Education, the area of vocational rehabilitation. I noticed that there was a under- representation of different ethnic groups, African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, in the population of individuals that went through that particular program. And the question that was raised exactly, what was going on? You know, why 
And what happened in that this is a government-sponsored, funded project program nationally, and yet we have underrepresentation in terms of participation. The second part of that is that sometimes we look at outcomes. In other words, the success rate of these particular programs, in this case, the vocational rehabilitation program, how many people got jobs after they finished the process. And again, we look at the data and it suggests that, again, these ethnic groups that we considered at that time to be, quote, minority, unquote, were not having the success that the majority population was having. And it was based upon these things that we looked at the role that ethnicity, culture, identity, how these things play out in the whole rehabilitation process. And have come to find that it's really a very, very important aspect of the whole process. I'll just mention one quick thing here. The worldview of many of these particular groups is more of a collective perspective rather than an individualistic perspective, which is oftentimes the American way. You know, a person comes in with a disability to a counselor, for example, and they begin talking about what rehabilitation may require, what's involved, and so on. And the person says, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and sign up and I'll do this. Well, in many of these other groups, there may be more of a collective decision-making process. The family may be more involved in this than just the individual. And if we leave them out, the whole process seems to fall apart. And this is just one example of how culture, ethnicity play out in this whole aspect of what we consider to be rehabilitation. And that's the reason why it's so important that we pay some attention to this. I can see why being aware of something like this would be critical in an individual's treatment, a huge factor in achieving a positive and lasting outcome. I think that's one of the things that we found in the past that the counselors, psychologists would say, you have an individual in front of you, you can go ahead and do what you want. And while, yes, we can do that, in many of the cultures, and especially Asian culture and some of the Hispanic cultures as well, the family plays a much more of a role in how we make decisions. You go and you talk these things out and you don't just go ahead and, and act on your own. Do you also find that there's a disparity between the treatments that the different cultures might receive or different ethnicities might receive that people in that rehabilitation profession might need to be aware of? Unquestionably, the data are very clear in this, that there are disparities in the general healthcare system, and that filters on down into the whole area of the rehabilitation process, whether it be vocational rehabilitation or addictions programming and so on. They're more likely to be negative effects, I guess. And there are lots of reasons for this. I think just recently, for example, with the COVID-19, there's been a lot of attention paid, for example, to the fact that minority groups seem to be more susceptible and more likely to have the severe symptomatology rather than uh, the majority. And of course, we can trace a lot of this to the additional stress, the fact that you have less income, lower socioeconomic status, sometimes lesser amount of education, fewer supports. And then, of course, the whole prospect of how much support resource do you have in terms of 
your health insurance if you have a health insurance. So all these things do play a role in why disparities are often the case. And I think that the most recent events with the virus just, I think, indicate that to be true. In your role with the National Association of Multicultural Rehabilitation Concerns, I know that you were also very involved in a process of mentoring young professionals in that field. What did you tell them? What was the focus of that? Was it to raise awareness of these kinds of things, or did you go in different directions? Well, I think that you're right. That's a good comment about what we were trying to do. I think the organization itself is very much interested in making sure that we get more and more professionals into the field from these different groups. One of the problems, I guess, in the past has been so few workers that, for example, look like me, who look like others of other minority and ethnic groups. That in itself, while not a major, perhaps, or the only factor, but it helps. When someone comes in and a counselor or psychologist or even the physician or nurse and so on is someone that at least you can relate to, I think it helps a great deal in terms of beginning the process. And so one of the things that we tried to do is to work and to encourage young folks from these various groups to go and get the knowledge and the education needed, the skills, competencies needed to succeed. We try to provide scholarships, mentoring programs, to have them understand sometimes that it is not an easy road or pathway, but that, in fact, there are supports that they can come out ahead and that they can make a difference in the world. With all these things, I think the organization has, I think, succeeded to a fair amount of encouraging. And we, at the meetings every year, would have students present their work, uh, whether it be in their practice or whether it be research studies that they do as part of their educational program, that they can share these things as part of the process of uh, becoming a professional in rehabilitation. Well, your work in that area has certainly been commendable. Your service as past president of the National Association, it certainly speaks to your involvement. Are you still involved with these efforts today? Well, regrettably, not as much. I've been phasing out, actually, over the last five years since I retired. I had served on a number of committees, and I was asked to do a keynote two years ago at the National Association. And I did that just after I had some uh, heart issues and heart surgery, but it went very well. And I was very pleased to be invited back. Since that time, I finished my role on another national committee related to the American Psychological Association, the Minority Fellowship Program, which provides fellowships, monetary support to students at the master's and at the doctoral level. And these are very competitive uh, fellowships that are offered. They're primarily funded through SAMHSA, which is a substance abuse administration of the federal government. And since that, I just finished that term. So I'm pretty much phasing out of this whole process and letting younger folks come in and, and take over. What a terrific contribution you've made for the field in psychology and rehabilitation toward bringing awareness and raising professional standards for practicing in a multicultural society, which benefits all of us. So thank you for your tremendous efforts. 
And I, I have to think of this. You and I were discussing earlier a class that you had offered at Ollie on Asians in America. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, be happy to. First of all, by the way, this is a coincidence. This happens to be May, which is the Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, which has been celebrated on a yearly basis. I mean, all since, I think, 1978. So in that sense, it's a very relevant and certainly a coincidence. But what I tried to do in that particular class was to point out that, first of all, there are many ethnic groups within the rubric of Asian American. It's not just one particular group of people. There are people of uh, Chinese background, Japanese background, Hmong background, Vietnamese, uh, other Southeast Asian countries, Thai, those that live in Taiwan. There are people in Malaysia. And so there are all kinds of, of ethnicities that are involved. And we also include people from South Asian, uh, Indian subcontinent as well. And so they're considered to be Asian as well. And it's a little bit different than perhaps uh, the majority where people have a background. These people are, are people that come from so many different ethnic backgrounds that in the past, uh, the country of origin, they didn't always get along. There were conflicts or different languages that are spoken. And so to put them all together into one category is certainly an artificial process. But over a period of time, I think all these groups here in the United States as Asians who live here in America have come to accept the idea that being together may not be all a negative thing, that it provides us numbers because oftentimes right now, for example, Asian Americans are a little less than 5% of the total U.S. population. And obviously, with that small a population, you don't have as much political influence or power to have the kind of recognition that sometimes we feel we ought to have. So that was one of the first things that prompted me to add that class to Ollie. I had obviously taught some of that as part of my coursework in revoltation when we start talking about multicultural groups. Obviously, this is one of the areas that I would include. The other thing that I wanted to do with the class was to emphasize that Asian Americans have played a major role in contributing to the growth and to the country that we call the United States of America. Obviously, I think the one thing that comes to mind, the Chinese were instrumental in building the railroad, especially from the West Coast to Promontory Point in Utah where they met the group that was working westward. Primarily that group, I guess, was uh, Irish workers, but uh, there were a mix of uh, African-Americans and other groups as well. And they met in Promontory Point. But the Chinese part of it was the hardest part, I think, because they had to go over the Sierras, the Rocky Mountains, and they did this in a space of four or five years during some horrendous weather, horrendous working conditions, and many lost their lives as a, a part of that process, but that's a contribution, I think, that they made. Another part of it is, uh, in fact, I was just reading about this not too long ago, building of the various national parks. We don't think of Chinese laborers as being uh, some of the labor behind the building of some of the national parks, but in fact, they, they spent a lot of time building trails, 
and places that we now enjoy as part of our national parks. In Yosemite, there is a, a mountain peak. It's called Sing Peak, S-I-N-G. And it was actually named after a Chinese chef who cooked for some of the VIPs that were brought out to look at Yosemite as a possible place to develop as a national park. I don't remember his name, but the head of the national park at that time had picked out this particular Chinese person, Tai Sing, T-Y-S-I-N-G, to get the food prepared and to, to, I guess, explain what this whole Yosemite Valley was all about and so on. And eventually he named the mountain peak after this particular Chinese chef. So again, that's just an illustration, one illustration of some of the contributions that, that have been made. I know I can go on forever and ever, but there are a couple other things I just want to bring out related to that class. First, the third thing, I guess now, is that there was a law that was enacted in 1882, and it was basically the Chinese Exclusion Act. That was an act that said that Chinese were not allowed to immigrate to America unless you were a merchant or you could come, I guess, as a student. And that act virtually stopped immigration after the railroad was completed of the Chinese. And it was not really reinstated until 1943, but the act itself kept people away until 1965 with the reform of the immigration legislation in 1965. So that was another piece of, of Asian American history. Turning to a more another negative aspect of that period of time was the Japanese internment that occurred with the Japanese in World War II, where they were sent to internment camps and their livelihood, uh, oftentimes their homes and so on, were taken away from them. They were given the option of carrying one or two suitcases and then put on buses and trains and so on to various places of camps. And one here in Texas was in Crystal City, which is uh, just outside the San Antonio area. Again, that's certainly a piece of history that while some people recognize and know that it happened, was an important part of Asian American history, which, by the way, I think also played a significant role in, in terms of lessons that one can learn. One of the persons that was at the internment camp was Norman Mineta, who was a Secretary of Transportation under George Bush during 9-11. And one of the things that he recognized at the time was that when you put a whole group of people into camps, in other words, uh, you pick them out because of their race, Again, that would be unfair, unjust, and certainly something that he didn't want to do. He was able to prevent the many of the, I think, Muslims and others who may have been from the Middle East from wholesale put into isolation as a result of 9-11. So again, I think that we can learn. I think it's another lesson that we can learn from things that happened in the past. These are really very interesting things that you bring up and important aspects of our history for all Americans to be aware of. And I have to say, I did not know about the uh, act uh, preventing Chinese from immigrating until very recently. I never learned that in history. And the time frame still blows my mind a bit when you mentioned that it wasn't until 1963 that the effects of that didn't actually diminish. 
And, right. and I was just at Yosemite uh, last summer, and I had no idea that there was a chef named Singh who had a peak named after him, mm-hmm. I, and, and the contribution that the Chinese had toward our beautiful, beautiful national parks. I think that kind of thing is so important for everyone in America to be aware of. Uh, this was also in the first class that I gave at Ollie. Many times I think people don't realize that the Chinese who were here, there was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment during the 1800s, and there were lots of feeling that these were people that uh, didn't belong here. One of the things I brought out in that class was that they were not afraid to speak out and to try to find the resources needed. And they oftentimes ended up at the Supreme Court. The first one, the first instance of not the first instance of being in the Supreme Court, but certainly one of the cases that came before the Supreme Court brought by a Chinese person, in this case, Yik Wu, Y-I-C-K-W-O. And this was the Yik Wu versus Hopkins in 1886. And this was a result of uh, San Francisco. And as most of you probably are aware, there are a lot of uh, Chinese living in San Francisco, as that was the gateway to America for many from the Far East. One of the things that Chinese uh, did do was to open laundries. I mean, this was certainly uh, one of the things that they could not get into trouble for, um, because something that maybe um, many of the majority didn't want to do. So they opened laundries. Well, there was discrimination against them for even doing something like that. And so a law was passed by San Francisco, the city of San Francisco, that they needed to meet certain requirements. The laundries needed to meet certain requirements. Well, nothing wrong with that on face value. Just like restaurants today have to be sanitary and so on, they have to meet health standards. Well, so they had passed this on. But the issue was that they would not enforce it equally. They would, the only ones that were enforced were the Chinese laundry owners. Everyone else was uh, let go. They didn't, they didn't receive citations or whatever they gave out. And so Yik Wu, who was a laundryman, took this to court. And he said, you can't just deny us because we're Chinese. And they said, well, no, the law is just the law. And he took it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and it came out to be the Equal Protection Clause that we so often cite today, that a law has to apply to everybody equally. In this case, the law may have been fine, but it wasn't applied equally. And he won the case in 1886. The second one I just mentioned, I mentioned it in that class, was the U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark, A-R-K, in 1898. Basically, what happened here was that Wong Kim Ark was uh, born in San Francisco, and they would travel to China because of their lost family and so on that were in China at the time. And then when he came back, they said, well, you know, we, we can hold you. You can't let you in because you're really not a U.S. citizen. And he said, yes, I am. I was born here. You have my uh, birth certificate. And it was based on this argument. He said, I was born on U.S. soil. And again, this was an interpretation. I think it was the 14th Amendment at the time. It has since become, you know, the citizenship is acquired by birth in the U.S. 
and that has maintained itself. Uh, I know, again, it's become a bit controversial recently, but where you were born makes all the difference. And that was, again, a case decided by a Chinese individual, in this case, Wong Kim Ark, in uh, 1898, taking it to the Supreme Court. So I think that the contributions that uh, Chinese Americans, Asian Americans have made have been very significant over the course of the history of the U.S. in the last couple hundred years. And I think that we don't learn this in school. I don't know how much of this is taught in schools today, but I just know that it was certainly something that I was not aware of until I started looking into this and reading and so on as an adult. Well, the first reference to Chinese food I could find in regards to cooking was a 1930s Chinese American cookbook. And I think it would be quite insulting to Chinese Americans if it were published today. It seemed to have nothing in common with authentic Chinese food. It was certainly full of distasteful distortions, and I'd have to go so far as to say offensive mockery. But in 1964, the Chinese Gourmet was published by the Chinese American Citizens Alliance, representing a shift away from those corrupted recipes that were so Americanized that they were more caricatures of Chinese cooking toward the Chinese culinary experience as an art and an aid to the doldrums of a bland American palate. And far from Chinese hamburgers and Thanksgiving turkey Cantonese that were in the earlier book, this guide catered to more authentic traditional cookery. And most importantly, it seemed to have represented more of more than just an acceptance of an ethnic cuisine, but also greater strides in the United States of a more enlightened acceptance of the Chinese culture as well. You stated in your course description that the proliferation of Chinese restaurants in the United States now exceed, and this is an incredible statement to me, all the McDonald's, Burger King's, Wendy's, Domino's, and Pizza Hut's combined. How do you explain that? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, the estimates seem to be about 51,000 plus Chinese restaurants now in the United States. One of the, the reasons, I guess, would be that it, it's always been seen as somewhat inexpensive and cheap. I think that's one. Uh, secondly, I think that there's still the perception somewhat of, you know, here is something different, exotic or foreign that I can get, and it doesn't cost a whole lot. But then, uh, you know, I would like to be less cynical and say that there is something, I think, tasty. What do you think about these Americanized versions or recipes for Chinese food? The thing is, you know, we, we oftentimes, I may differ a little bit from others who have a more specific or a viewpoint, a perspective of what is authentic or not. I see cooking and, and eating and enjoying food as a evolutionary process. Everything that we eat is because of what we like. And when people cook and put things together, they, and I, I think there's been increasingly an acceptance of this. What is done here obviously is not exactly what would be done back in the country of origin. But we've incorporated aspects of things and something good has come out, something delicious has come out of the process. And so that then becomes authentic. The story, I think one of the stories I told in the class is General Cho's Chicken. 
Now, that's a, a dish that probably some say would be the most popular or most often ordered dish in Chinese restaurants in the United States. But if you were in China, you probably would not come across General Cho's chicken. A chef did create it from, I think, who was from China, but it's basically sold as a, an American Chinese dish. And yet, it, you know, I, I enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> I don't order it at all, obviously, but uh, it's certainly a tasty rendition of a major chicken dish, an entree. Kung Pao chicken, I think, is a, another one that uh, similarly, it's a very spicy dish. But again, it's not one that you would ordinarily find exactly that way in, in form that we find it here in China. And I can't say that I'm a, a great expert in, in Chinese, quote, food in China. I've only been there a few times in my life. I've spent most of my life, uh, majority of my life here in, in the United States. So again, these things, I think that we've evolved. And, you know, we talk about some of the more recent chefs and Asian restaurants, Chinese restaurants in particular, who have adapted and then have come up with things that are different and new. And maybe if you were from more stuck in the old ways, perhaps they would not be something that would be acceptable. And yet, I think it's perfectly authentic and certainly something that we can appreciate and applaud. I know that your family has quite a connection with Chinese food and Chinese restaurants. Can you tell me when your family first came to the United States? Where were they from? They're from southern China in the Guangdong area or the Cantonese area. My mother was actually born in Los Angeles in California, but her father took her back to Hong Kong and she grew up in Hong Kong. Her father was a, a farmer, more of a truck farmer in, in Southern California. He would grow vegetables and things like that, and then he would take them, bring them into a market generally weekends. So he was here, I guess, before actually the turn of the century. My father was born in Canton or Guangdong today. He came over when he was about 19 years old, I think, as a student. It was around uh, just before the uh, recession in the early 1930s, and it was a difficult time, obviously, for everyone to be here at that time. He started going to school, working as a houseboy. He worked in a cannery, and he went to technical school. He never finished, I don't believe. And when I was growing up, I didn't ask a lot of questions about my mother's background or my father's background. Most of the time, I think we were trying to fit in as Americans. They tried to teach us some Chinese by sending us to Chinese school in the afternoons. But some of that just didn't take. And certainly one of the greatest regrets that I had was that I didn't learn to write or read Chinese. But at the time, you know, I didn't see it as a significant or important or something that I even wanted to do. I think that uh, this is true of many, uh, especially early on. And we didn't have a whole lot of history that was taught that included Chinese in school. All that I have learned about uh, Chinese American history, Asian American history, has come since I finished actually my doctorate. And I was teaching and then I was trying to pick up on, on things and to learn about my own identity and background. And it was in that sense that I began to learn about some of the background in terms of the contributions, some of the negative aspects of what has happened in the past and so on. But at the same time, my parents did teach me to be proud as having been of Chinese descent. One of the things that I know that they emphasize, which I kind of rejected until recently, 
was that you represented all the Chinese in whatever behavior you did. You had to behave in school and, and you had to be polite and address people in the correct way and so on because you were Chinese and then you were representative of all these billions of people in another part of the world. And like I said, it was something that, you know, I, I find kind of uh, funny now, I guess, when I think back. But certainly those are the kinds of things that make an impact on you as you were growing up. And while we were proud of being Chinese, I know at the same time, I didn't want to always be Chinese. I wanted to fit in with everyone else. And so I didn't spend a lot of time asking questions about where my ancestors were and where they came from. Actually, I don't, don't know a whole lot until more recently I've learned, you know, I did have cousins in, in uh, the mainland. And so we've had some contact and I have been able to regain a little bit of my own background. Your class is so beautifully, beautifully described as a tribute to your father. I understand he has a history in the Chinese restaurant business. Could you talk a little about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mentioned before that he came over as a student. By the way, this was also during all during the, the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I still find it amazing that he was able to come over here Eventually, he was naturalized as a U.S. citizen, and I don't know the process. He obviously had a student visa at the time, but somehow all this came about, and I imagine it was not easy, but he was able to do that. He ended up, I guess, after he had finished school, or at least a few years in school, and looking for employment. Obviously, uh, employment was not something that was easy to obtain. Somehow, he connected to a restaurant owner in Jackson, Michigan. It was a Chinese restaurant, and it was interesting because my wife and I, Wendy and I, visited there about maybe 10 years ago now. We drove into Jackson, and we were just driving down the main street of Jackson, which is not a big town. Uh, I imagine there were maybe 30,000 people who live there now. At one time, I think maybe fifty or 60,000. And we, we stopped and saw a plaque on the street, one of these historical markers. And so we got out of the car and, and we looked up at the, the marker and read what it said. It said this was a three-story building that it commemorated. And it said that it was one of the first buildings to have air conditioning. And on the third floor was a Chinese restaurant named Fairy Garden, which is the name of the restaurant that my father worked at as a, a wait person in the early 1940s. That is so cool. You must have been thrilled to have seen that. It was a, an amazing experience for me to be able to locate the place where he worked and to know that it was actually marked as a historical building. But aside from that, you know, he ended up working as a way person there. He went to Hong Kong in the early 1940s and came back with my mother. And they settled in Jackson, Michigan. That's the reason I was born in Jackson, which is where most people, when they ask me uh, where I come from, I say Jackson, Michigan. A joke that I often use is that uh, that most people aren't satisfied with that answer, but they want to know more about, you know, well, are you sure this is where, where you're really from? And I know what they're trying to get at, which is uh, my background, my ethnicity. But I was born in the United States in 1941, and this was just six days before Pearl Harbor. And, of course, then the Second World War started. My father was older than, uh, I guess, a draftable type at that point. But at that time, I think most of you are aware, 
if you did not uh, go off to actually serve in the service, you were expected to be a part of the defense effort. And so my dad uh, located a job at a tire plant in Los Angeles, California. And we took the train. I was three years old and we moved to California and I kind of grew up in Southern California as a result. After he uh, worked the two years or so at the tire factory, the Firestone factory in California, of course, he then he started looking for a job after the war was over. The, the job that he was able to locate was with a restaurant in Chinatown, Los Angeles, as another wait person. And this was at the Limehouse, a restaurant in old Chinatown, Los Angeles. And he stayed at the Limehouse until he retired. But on top of that, I think the significant thing is that he was able to uh, support. Uh, my mother worked as well. She ended up doing some studying and, and clerical work and so on. But she ended up eventually, uh, this was after I had moved on, I, I think even graduated from high school. She actually went to work for the Internal Revenue Service and ended up as a, an auditor with the Internal Revenue Service. But the two of them together and... Uh, my dad being a way person and my mother working in clerical positions, administrative positions, and then finally as an auditor. They had an intimate connection, obviously, with cooking and food. And my dad especially, because he was the one that was home uh, during when we were growing up oftentimes during the day, because he would not leave until, oh, maybe 2.33 in the afternoon to go to work at, at the Chinese restaurant. And he would work there till midnight or so and be home about 2.30 or so in the morning. But he, would, he was the one that I oftentimes followed around in terms of understanding how, what he prepared. And then once or a few times, I think I ended up at the restaurant itself and watched some of the things that were going on at that time as well. But um, I was going to say that uh, he raised uh, four kids. They raised four kids uh, who have done, I think, relatively well, you know, my Two brothers also have doctoral degrees. My sister has a master's degree in, in art history. And so this is, a, I think, a story of success of an immigrant families and what happens with their children in terms of the desire to drive them to work hard and to try to succeed wherever they can. And as a result, I guess, you know, I'm grateful to them for being able to do what I do now uh, today. The, my career uh, certainly owe a lot of the education to their sacrifices that they made. And this was true not only of my mother and dad, but certainly their siblings as well, because my cousins have all been able to benefit from this. And it's a story that obviously, time again, by other immigrant families. Most definitely an obvious success, given your background. And I have to assume you must be quite a cook, too. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I, I do enjoy cooking. I do cooking at home here. But, uh, you know, you learn a lot about culture and people by understanding food and so on. And part of it, I think I learned from Anthony Bourdain. If you ever watched a series on television, I thought he had the most insight and knowledge that uh, of different places and peoples, their perspective, their worldview. Uh, then many of the people that I know as uh, professionals in the area, because of his knowledge of food and his willingness to experiment and to be open to new things. 
I'm sure that our listeners must now want to get off of their computers and their iPhones and their iPads and go get something to eat at their favorite Chinese restaurant. I know I do. And based on the popularity you mentioned, I don't think they'll have far to go there. And I think uh, as of this COVID-19 opening, I think there are some, (laughs) they can get in now as long as they don't exceed the maximum capacity, but there is carry out. You have shared some very interesting insight into the history and contributions of Asian Americans, especially timely in light of the fact that, as you mentioned, we're recording during the Asian and Pacific American Heritage Month, paying tribute to the rich heritage that has helped shape the history of the United States. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate and enjoyed the time together. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, talking with Dr. Paul Leong. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ali at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.